funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Silver Screen Video. This is Jonathan here with my co-host Jacob. Uh, Jacob, we don't have a guest today. Does this feel weird to you? You know, you, I feel like you say like a a, um, a version of that every time, but uh, no, nah, man, this is just this is just uh, OG Silver Screen Video. You know, we're getting we're getting back to our roots with this. Um, Look, I, hold on, hold on. I understand that I may have pointed it out in the past, but we've literally had guests for the last nine weeks. So I'm just saying it's just it's just back to me and you, you know, I'm just pointing it out to the listeners. Like, I, I just feel a little strange is all. Yeah, OK, that's fair. Yeah, it's a little weird. You know, it's unusual. We've had a we've had a third mic on for quite a while, and now we're uh, we're all by our lonesome. You know, who who knows if we can carry this thing? I don't know. I don't know either. I just don't like not having a buffer between us. But I guess we'll have to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, we are separated by hundreds of miles and cannot see each other currently. So you know, if that makes you feel any better, you know, we can just we can just get on with it. Yeah, you know, that's a good that that's a good point. So but all seriousness, guys, yeah, we don't have a guest today. Um, we're gonna be doing an old school director episode uh that we haven't done in, in a few months, actually. Uh oh, yeah. and this was uh this was an ep- this was a director that uh Jacob picked, and we have been trying to do this particular director for a while, but something kept coming up. So we are both really excited and uh we've actually discussed his work previously, but we'll get to that. Um, Jacob, why don't you tell the people who it is and kind of why you want it to, to do this episode? Folks, he he is essentially what is like a kind of a cursed director for us in the sense that we literally have been trying to do this episode, but one thing or another keeps coming up. And even like yesterday when we had planned to record this, we were like, you know, we had to reschedule. Like, I don't know. I don't know what, you know, the, you know, the elusiveness of Luis Bunuel, um, you know, is, uh, has been kind of frustrating, but Hey, we're finally doing it. I'm excited. You know, Bunuel is one of those filmmakers. Um, you know, I've seen a number of his movies, um, not nearly as many as I should have. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few of his movies that I haven't seen, um, that I need to kind of get on, but you know, I, I don't know. I, we were kind of tinkering around with doing volume two of some of the directors we have done. And, um, you know, when I look back at some of the directors we've done, you know, Hitchcock, Orson Welles, Kubrick, Fellini, Godard, you know, Bergman, people like that. Like, I really think Bunuel belongs in that conversation. You know, he belongs in the top tier of filmmakers alongside, you know, Kurosawa, Renoir, you know, people like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. He, he's in that top level for me. And so I figured, um, you know, why not uh, why not do like a volume one on Bunuel where we talk about three movies and then we'll dive even further into his filmography next time we uh next time we come around to it you know yeah you know i was i was introduced to boone well um because you know as we've discussed on the podcast you know it feels crazy we've been doing this for a year and a half now um i have some blind spots because i i grew up watching a lot of movies but foreign cinema wasn't exactly something that i was i had a lot of exposure to outside of the classics Mm -hmm. so a lot of blind spots for me 
that you're kind of helping filling in with episodes like this. And and we did an episode a long time ago. It seems like a lifetime ago now. Episode 19. Um, we did a double feature and we talked about one of Boonwell's what's considered, I think, to be one of his best movies, if not his best movie, The Exterminating Angel. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a masterpiece. It was utterly fantastic. Like, if you want to check that episode out, guys, go check it out. I believe the other it was right when quarantine started. So we paired it with another like location based kind of trap movie with green room. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. So we were kind of picking that theme a little bit for that double feature, but the exterminating angel, I guess we can just briefly say like, you know, it's about these wealthy people at a party that get trapped in this room, but it's, there's no explanation for it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of shows you how quickly things kind of fall apart. And it is a phenomenal film. There's, there's a couple of double takes that we discussed in that episode that are just, next level i mean the guy was doing stuff that i don't even know if people were thinking about in the film industry at the time so yeah i mean even I mean, tackling even, huh i was just gonna say i mean even today you know i mean oh yeah no 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 exactly yeah i mean it, I, I think exterminating angel is probably his most famous movie to the extent that it's i mean i don't know if it's become like a meme but it's become you know if you say Luis Bunuel movie most of the time people are going to think of the exterminating angel. Um, I know there's a, in Woody Allen's uh, midnight in Paris, there's a joke about it, you know? Um, so, so it's kind of, it's kind of the movie most people know about it. And I think it's a great movie, but um, you know, he's got some other bangers too. Um, so yeah, I don't know, man. Should we jump into it? Yeah. Let's um, why don't you tell uh, everybody what three movies you picked? Because one of these movies after watching it for a second time, I was telling Jacob off the podcast that um, I think I might like it more than Exterminating Angel, but I'm going to have to watch Exterminating Angel again to kind of do a fair comparison. But uh, what three films are we talking about? Yeah, so I, I wanted to cover kind of, um, you know, because Bunuel had a few different um, a few different uh, periods during his career, um, and I wanted to cover a few different ones. Um, the first one is uh, Lage d'Or. Uh, which uh, is French for the golden age. Uh, Sometimes it's translated as the age of gold, Um, a 1930 uh, surrealist movie that he made um, when he was an artist in France. Um, He was, um, he was kind of uh, with the French surrealists and around 1925 to 1930, you know, that age of, um, you know, speaking of midnight in Paris, I mean, the reason there's a joke about exterminating angel in midnight in Paris is because Louise Bunuel shows up in that movie alongside other artists like Man Ray, Picasso, you know, Paris in the twenties was, um, uh, certainly a thing, you know, and, um, Gertrude Stein, uh, Ernest Hemingway, James Joyce, you know, a lot of artists, uh, around each other in that time period. And, um, he was part of that. Um, and then he, you know, obviously is originally, uh, from Spain and he spent some time in Spain in the thirties. Um, and then the Franco regime, you know, um, happened. And obviously we, we talked about that quite a bit in our Guillermo del Toro episode. He deals with a lot of that in his movies, uh, del Toro does. Um, and so he spent some time in Spain and then he actually spent seven years in Hollywood from 1938 to 1945. Um, which you don't hear a lot about and wasn't very productive for him. He tried to, um, 
I think they signed him on for a uh, a couple of uh, like to do a couple of script rewrites or something. He just never had any success at all in Hollywood. Uh, couldn't even really get off the ground. I'm sure there's an interesting book or an interesting documentary to be made about his his uh, lack of success in Hollywood at the time. Uh, but then he was kind of in exile. Um, he spent um, he spent about seven years in Mexico from about 46 to 53. And that's where our second movie comes in, which is uh, Los Olvidados, uh, a Mexican movie from 1950. Um, it's also translated um, as The Forgotten Ones. Uh, the U.S., where they released it as The Young and the Damned. Um, so that's the second movie we'll be talking about. And then starting in about 1953, um, he started returning to, or maybe 1954, he started returning to international filmmaking. And for instance, Vera Diana, which is the third movie we'll be talking about, was 1961. This was a Spanish-Mexican co-production, a combination of uh, the Mexican film industry and the Spanish film industry, which was um, you know, starting to open up around that time period. And then his kind of international flourishing uh, happened in the 60s and 70s. You know, this is when he made um, That Obscure Object of Desire, um, Belle de Jour, with uh, Catherine Deneuve, Simone of the Desert, Diary of a Chambermaid, Exterminating Angel, as we mentioned previously, Tristana, Tristana, I think it's pronounced, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Phantom of Liberty. These are movies that you'll see released on the Criterion Collection and probably his most famous uh, works. But I wanted to not just focus on that era, but also get, you know, some stuff from his early work in France and his... Um, Mexican work, which um, is often overlooked. I mean, as evidenced, uh, try to find Los Olvidados on the internet, you're going to have a tough time, you know. Uh, so that's why um, that's why I wanted to focus on those three different eras, because I'm assuming uh, if we ever do Boonwell Volume 2, which we will, we'll be focusing mostly on his later work, because it's the ones that are most available and most lauded and so forth. Um, but yeah, I figured this would be a good overview. So yeah, man, you think we should uh, just jump into the first movie? Yeah, let's just uh what is I'm assuming that's the um if we're going in chronological order that's how do you pronounce that? I don't want to get it wrong. You know, it's Lage d'Or. Um I think is how you pronounce it. Uh the Golden Age um is the uh, English translation, so yeah. We can go with that. The Golden Age. Um it's most commonly known as Lage d'Or though. Um yeah. So this was an interesting one because he worked with Salvador Dali, but apparently that did not last because mm. Dali got pissed and left. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, I actually have an anecdote about this. Um, Dali and him had a falling out, and um, I don't know much about the falling out when it actually happened. But later on, when Bunuel was trying to make it in America, uh, Salvador Dali published his biography and called Bunuel an atheist and a communist. And as a result, as a result, Bunuel uh, had some difficulty getting uh, getting work uh, in America. <laughs> and so, yeah, this feud, um, this feud with Dolly, um, you know, bore fruit later on when when Bunuel tried to make it in America. So. Well, you know, this movie was strange. It was um, it was definitely like, uh, you know, it's surrealism. Is that the genre that this falls into? Mm hmm. Like, so, uh, you know, I always do it's it's 50 50 on whether I'm going to do well with the movie 
that's not really grounded with any form. Because I don't necessarily always need a through line or a particular narrative. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with a film that's like a bunch of chopped up like vignettes of like just utter chaos that doesn't really have like to give you an idea, we start with scorpions like this, this footage of these scorpions attacking each other that that was actually footage that was shot that Boonwell gave the narrative to. So we start there and then it just goes on and it's just this these weird connectors like, you know, at one point we've we've got a man and a woman rolling around in the mud like next to a religious gathering <laughs> and <laughs> it was amusing. But then we get to this party and and there's this 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 guy and this woman and they're putting each other's fingers in their mouth and uh, for she starts sucking on a statue. and there's a lot of religious undertones there's a lot going on there that that is way above my pay grade in terms of how to break it down but i will tell you this this film resulted in rioting and was banned in france and uh until the 80s and and it was banned I, i believe it was banned in a couple of other places as well but this was not a movie to be taken lightly when it came out like this was a this definitely was like a movie that he he put so much into that it was upsetting to a lot of different groups, but we'll find out that that's kind of his thing. Like he he likes to upset the balance, which I really like about as a filmmaker. So, right, yeah. I mean, you know what's interesting about about this movie about Lajdor Golden Age. You know, we're talking about 1930. Um, this was one of the first uh, sound films made in france so i mean you know this 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 type of surrealism is um you know i mean cinema obviously existed i mean silent film you know um obviously existed but we're talking about messing with and kind of um messing with a narrative style of a relatively new art form you know so i feel like maybe people would have been more receptive of something like this at the time simply because it's like, oh, well, this is brand new. We don't know quite what to expect of it yet, you know, whereas now we've got a hundred years of, you know, classical Hollywood storytelling to kind of, um, I don't know, brain, not brainwash us, but to condition us into expecting certain things, you know, you know, this was a really popular movie. It, uh, it was, it provoked attacks by a right wing, uh, French group called the league of Patriots, (laughs) Um, they, uh, also destroyed artworks by Salvador Dali, Man Ray, you know, other, um, you know, other, um, artists, surrealist artists at the time. Uh, and they said that the content of the film quote, the most represents the most repulsive corruption of our age, the new poison, which Judaism, Masonry and rabid revolutionary sectarianism, want to use in order to corrupt the people, (laughs) which, uh, that's a, that's a mouthful. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's, um, that's what people were saying about it at the time. And it was, but it was a popular movie. And I think we should dig into a little bit of kind of what, what it's really about. I mean, it starts out as a documentary about scorpions, um, which is funny. And then, like you said, it turns into a series of vignettes And I think the only through line, you know, through this movie is there is a couple who are basically attempting 
to fuck essentially like that's they're attempting to um have sex or consummate their relationship or whatever and they're continually thwarted by um a lot of different things you know like like at first like you said they are um creating a disturbance by trying to you know have sex in the mud during a religious ceremony but the man is kind of apprehended and and dragged away um he breaks free long enough and he kicks a little dog he struggles to uh he struggles he he finally frees himself and crushes a beetle with his shoe you know the the implication being i think that these are two people who are just just filled to the brim with pure sexual desire but they are being kept from fulfilling it by the church by society by you know whatever i mean he yeah because sees... from what i read it really touched on like sexual oppression mm-hmm. like and and one one critic i read i believe said it 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 goes into religious uh sexual oppression and he said a few other things but then he was like with no logical i've been trying to remember exactly what he said it was like that while making no logical sense is what right. it, it's basically what it said to where all the things it was going after um but I, to me that was the only one that was really obvious to like uh, because i didn't really pick up on anything else cuz it was just so bizarre I mean, to, to be honest with you, I, I mean, I'm not saying that's it like the, that. That's the only thing to read. But I think that's the primary that's the primary thing with this movie. You know, like I think it's I mean, it's 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 an hour long. Right. Like it's not um, it's not particularly, um, you know, involved beyond that. And well, I think what we essentially get is just a series of gags. I mean, he's so this man is so horned up that he you know, he's so full of sexual energy. He beats the shit out of a blind man. You know, the woman, you know, that they, they, they have a party. Yeah, th- there's <laughs> the maid comes out of a door where flames are visible. Um, a boy is shot and killed. We have basically a bunch of chaos going on. Um, yeah, the man arrives at the party, sees his lover from across the room, behaves brusquely toward the other guests while looking ardently in the woman's direction. And then, yeah, she starts sucking on this the, on the toes of this statue. This woman is so horned up that she that she is sucking on the toe of a statue in place of one can assume a penis. Yeah, I mean it's a really it's a really sexual movie. There's a lot of sexual frustration here. Um, one of my favorite scenes <laughs> one of my favorite scenes is where he starts throwing shit out the window, uh, which it, to me it was like something out of Buster Keaton. It was just really funny where he throws the. He throws a tree and then he throws the bishop, um, a plow, uh, a, a statue of a giraffe, um, a handful of feathers. Yeah, it, it, it's it's just really funny. Yeah, I, 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 I really got like this feeling of like slapstick just thrown in there. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the amount of shit that he could throw out this window appeared to be endless. Right. Like and that was and that was really amusing. Yeah. I, so I, I'm glad that you compared it to like Buster Keaton or something, because that's kind of the feeling I got. Yeah. It's really kind of funny and just surrealistic. You know, it reminds me of, um, it reminds me of, Oh, I do want to mention the end. The, the end is a little, a little, uh, I don't know necessarily on the nose, but, um, you know, the end, um, a woman is basically taken inside and we can assume, uh, 
raped or sexually assaulted by someone who looks like Jesus. Um, and the the last image is a Christian or a Christian cross. Yeah, a cross um, that has the scalps of women on it, you know, uh, indicating that, you know, I think I think the indication is pretty obvious here that 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 these kind of Catholic uh, moral values um, end up hurting women and end up uh, inciting violence against women and end up um, the suppression of sexual urges ends up uh, producing violence, you know, which is, you know, not a new concept, but it's, it's, it's interestingly done throughout these images, I think. Um, No. And and I think that we're going, you get a lot of that throughout his, where especially in these three movies we're watching, because like, obviously, as you said earlier, like you, you want to watch more of his work. I too have to watch more of his work. Some of his earlier stuff is very difficult to find, but I'm I'm assuming that comes up a lot because it comes up in all three of these movies, like Mm -hmm. his whole religion and sexual oppression and uh, things along those like type of thematic elements. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I think there's a couple different approaches to watching something like this. I mean, and I think I won't say the wrong approach, but I, I just to caution anybody who maybe has never watched a movie like this. I know we have a lot of younger listeners, you know, I would say don't try to catch every reference or every understand what every little thing is about. Just let this bad boy wash over you. You know, there's a there's a playfulness to this movie that's really funny if you kind of just give yourself over to it. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, we have this right. I mean, I remember um, I was just talking to you the other day about Odd Future, you know, title of the creator in the beginning of Odd Future. You know, those guys early on around 2010, I remember they went on the Jimmy Fallon show and wore ski masks and we're talking about killing people in the audience. And it was just, there, there was just this like, but it, I mean, it was funny. There's like this kind of dark humor, like adolescent, just energy and rage that was just kind of bubbling up. And, and th- th- this is something that happens with young artists, you know, um, you know, kind of, um, I mean, I say young artists, he was 30, but I guess the movement was young, you know, this, this surrealist movement with him and Dolly and kind of, um, reacting against the kind of uh, standards and morals of this bourgeois society and the value system of the Catholic church, you know, uh, basically combustible is how I would describe this. This is like, this is like kind of a bomb going off where they're just like mad at the world and they want to utilize their art and their artistic talent to kind of assault the standards of polite society at the time. And I think that's, the best way to understand this movie, even if, you know, and a lot of it is, I mean, a lot of surrealism is literally people just like, I mean, Salvador Dali had this thing where he would say, you know, the only true way to do art is to, you know, like have a dream and wake up and try best to transcribe that dream. And that's, Hey, it's a way to make art, you know? And it, it's sadly not, doesn't show up too much in our, um, modern conception of movies but it's still it's a valid way to make art and and a lot of people think it's really interesting and really powerful um myself included you know well i I will say this like you know we clearly watch a lot of movies given we have a movie podcast and and i even have to shift the way that i watch like these surrealistic films or, or new wave films like I have to like kind of switch the way I approach those because you, I think if you approach them like a traditional movie with a traditional narrative or three act structure or whatever, like it's going to kind of throw you for a loop. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So like I'm beginning to get more familiar with these types of films. Therefore I'm starting to like them more, but they can be a bit jarring. If I'm being honest in terms mm-hmm. of like just putting this on and being like, well, this is, this is fucking insane. What, what is the story doing? Nothing makes sense, et cetera, et cetera. So. Sure. I mean, that's partly the point, you know? Um, oh yeah. And, and I kind of like that. I love this. That's why I just like Boonwell in general. I love this. Not only does he feel a need to take on like the church and to take on sometimes a whole country as we're going to see. Um, and sometimes both at once, like he chooses to take these on, he's upsetting the balance, but also like, it's just madness at times to where it's like, actually, I don't give a shit if this makes sense. This is just what it is. Right. I mean, yeah, he was a complete amateur when, when he made this, I mean, he, um, had complete ignorance of cinematic production technique, um and it, it it you know it it rules man it's just like they gave a genius a camera and this is what he come up with you know but obviously this is um uh, you know another another early relic of this I, I wanted to watch it I meant to mention it to you but I, it just slapped um, slipped out of my mind Unchin Andalou was another movie he made with Salvador Dali um fifteen minute long short that actually came out the year before this um so this is kind of like a full length exploration of that same aesthetic that that exists in the other one. But um, yeah, hard recommend that as well. Do you know if that's like streaming on YouTube or what? I, I think there's a pretty good copy of it on YouTube. Yeah, it, it's I mean, I'm sure there is. Um, okay. It was it was on the Criterion channel. But yeah, you can find that on YouTube and it, it'll be good quality. That's, you know, for anybody who who isn't familiar with it, that's the famous um, uh, surrealist film where the eyeball gets cut open. Um and the, you know, I will say this, you know, Lodge Door is more chaotic, I think, whereas Unchin Andalou, there's like visual gags. Like, for instance, you will see uh, a moon at night and a, a kind of a dagger shaped cloud go across the moon and then it will cut to the eyeball uh, being cut open, you know, so it's like, you know, there's like a visual pun there almost. Um, you know, so there's little things like that, that, that I don't think really exist in Lodge Door, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a hard recommend, but you want, you want to transition into, uh, into the next movie? Yeah. Yeah. Let's transition into, uh, Los Avidados or the young and the damned, whichever you want to call it. Yeah. Let me, let me set the table here. Then I want to get your impressions. I'm just going to set the table and say, this is kind of like a, uh, this is a, uh, uh, a barrio barrio uh, movie and this is this like city of god um if anybody's uh seen that that's a pretty popular movie among um, yeah that that's a great comparison yeah yeah this this is kind of the og of that it's um you know this was made when he was in mexico and it's um it's basically about poor people poor young the young and the damned uh you know crime ridden uh destitute poverty in mexico city um, very similar to like social realism, you know, the, this is the way life really is, you know, tough, dangerous, whatever, you know, kids living on the street, you know, that type of thing. Um, so in that sense, it's very much more conventional or not necessarily more conventional, but we definitely have clearer reference points. Like you can watch this and you go, Oh, I get it. It's city of God, you know, but yeah, I don't know. What, 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 what were your thoughts on this? Seeing this for the first time? It's, it's really fucking bleak. There, there is nothing that is uplifting or even attempting to be uplifting. I mean, t- you know, so, so when I watched it, I've heard Guillermo del Toro talk about, um, Boonwell a lot. 
he he had a, a really good video that's actually on the Criterion, I believe, Criterion channel, where he talks about Vera Diana. And when you watch this movie, like I can definitely see kind of where there's there's shades of like Pan's Labyrinth, not the fantastical element, but like using like a civil war tearing a country apart as the backdrop for your movie. Mm-hmm. Like, because this is what a post-World War II, like super poor like just a devastated city where there is no way out of poverty. Like there's just, there's, there's no escape from, from what's going on. And he did not pull any punches with the state of the city they were in or, or basically how poor people were and what you had to do to make a living. And also just like the, the murderous rampage that sometimes poverty can push people to, which Mm -hmm. I think is really interestingly tackled in this film. But the the villain of the film is Yabo. And I really got like, you can see, uh, like, I don't think I'm stretching it too much, man. I saw shades of the general from Pan's Labyrinth in this. I saw shades of Michael Shannon from Mm. Shape of Water and Yabo, like this sociopathic, like, but he can turn on, he can turn on this like charm that you didn't even know he possessed, especially when he's dealing with Pedro's mother. There's just something about that character. So the the whole movie was just one sad, like, what else is going to happen? And then they assault this guy with no legs and take his car. And then you're like, Jesus Christ, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, there is, this is like the worst version of Aladdin you could watch. I'll say that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But, um... Yeah, oh, sorry, what, what were your thoughts on it? No, I was going to say, what were your thoughts on it? Like, is this your first time watching it, or have you seen it before? No, I have seen it before. Um, you know, this is, um, it, you know, I think a, another clear cinematic parallel to this is uh, Bicycle Thieves. You know, this is... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, there, there was kind of an international kind of realist movement, you know, neorealism, it, Italian neorealism in um, Italy. And then, you know, of course, Renoir was kind of playing with that in the early thirties with the poetic realism. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, th- it's, it's kind of tough to even put yourself in the, in the perspective to kind of understand what kind of movie this is, but, but Boonwell was a, Boonwell was a mainstream director in Mexico, right? Which obviously most people aren't familiar with the Mexican film industry in the 1950s and forties. And why would you be, unless you were like a scholar or something, but he was like a mainstream filmmaker there. Like he made a lot of, you know, quote unquote, conventionally entertaining things. And uh, Los Olvidados was supposed to be one of those, one of those kinds of movies, you know, like a, like kind of a low downbeat crime movie. But um, as he does with most things, Boonwell just took it to an absolute other level. You know, like you said, this is bleak. This is a story about, about poor people um, in bad conditions and bad shit happens to them. You know, it's, it's realism at its most gritty and even bicycle thieves, you know, bicycle thieves has a certain beauty to it, a certain poetry, a certain, not romance, but there's just something about it that is more cinematic and more, more romantic, even if it's not necessarily a romantic movie than something like this. Right. There's sentiment in Bicycle Thieves. There's not a lot of sentiment in this. This is again. Well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but I, I didn't want you to. I didn't want you to get off of that because that's a good track. I didn't want you to get off of it before I said this. Yeah. Um, 
Bicycle Thieves, like you're saying, it had some, there was some sentimental value there. There mm-hmm. was something about this, this guy trying to get his bike back and he had a family and he was just trying to earn money. But this movie is, is void of all of that. There is yeah. nothing, there is nothing going on. There is no one, like even, even Pedro, who's, who just wants his mother's love and just wants to be accepted. Even he, like, there's not exactly like, a, a turn there where this character is trying to better themselves or trying to, he's just like, he got a job trying to make his mother love him essentially. Right. But there, there's basically, there's no real heart or like, it's, it's a very sociopathic film when you compare it to bicycle thief. Yeah. It, it's, it's really, I mean, Pedro is, you know, our hero and he does some pretty, pretty unheroic stuff in this movie, you know, and first of all, he's a little snitch, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know also he um you know he he has an intention to kill yabo um at, at one point and i don't know man it's just brutal there's really no moral center to the movie if there is it's pedro and you know he uh spoiler alert does not uh, does not meet a happy ending let's say and in fact the the ending to the movie is really bleak i mean there's no other way to say it it's really really bleak um you know, th- this was something that concerned him, you know, uh, Boonwell, th- this uh, this kind of portraying the world as it really is, this kind of negative. I won't even say negative view, but the world. But he kind of had a like a I'm revealing how things really are, I guess, you know, and that is definitely laid bare in this movie. You know, there's another movie he made um, early on called Land Without Bread. Um, and it is a. uh it was a Spanish documentary. It was when he was still in Spain. And, and I think, I think actually it was a French and Spanish co-production directed by Bunuel. And it's a documentary and it focuses on the Las Huertas or Las Herdes, uh, I think is how you pronounce it. H U R D E S uh, region of Spain, which is a mountainous area um, that is just filled to the brim with absolute intense popper- poverty um, a really backwards community, completely isolated, called Land Without Bread because um, these people literally didn't have bread. Like there, it's a really rocky environment where they, you know, aren't, aren't able to literally grow like wheat and grain and stuff. Um, uh, a main source of income for them was taking in orphan children uh, who they received a government subsidy for uh, when they took them in, and. Bunuel does a kind of anthropological 30 minute documentary, almost like a travelogue uh, in a way that uh, is is brutal because it's real. Right. This is, you know, I'm sure that the, I'm sure Los Olvidados was based on, you know, true things. But this is this is an actual real documentary. And so so this is something Bunuel is interested in kind of laying bare the the savagery of everyday life you know, and that's, that's definitely what he does in this movie, but I don't know, not to, I feel like not to hammer that point home too much, but, um, I do want to mention, you know, since this is Moonwell, and I think this is what makes the movie really great. Uh, there are some surrealistic touches in this movie that I think are, I mean, I'm trying to even think of the word, but they're incredible. I, I really, I mean, they're incredible. What did you think about these kind of surrealistic touches? The dream was insane. Like it was fucking fantastic. Cause, cause honestly it shifts gears a little bit 
And for literally like four minutes, it's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's a really fantastic dream sequence, but also it tells you a lot about the characters as well, because there's a scene when the mother is complaining about her son because the mom until the end of the movie shows no interest in her son and she doesn't give him any meat. So in this dream sequence, like there was a bird under the mother's bed that was like doing something with illness, obviously like their, their local witch doctor or whatever you want to call the guy. Yeah. Like some so thing. Yeah, like as the bird gets sicker and dies, your illness will be removed kind of thing, which was also very similar to Pan's Labyrinth when they put the root under her mother's bed. Yep, yep. Um, So with the dream sequence, he's like, why didn't you give me any meat? And she gives him this meat. And then the bird is replaced with the dead body of the boy that he took, that he helped Yabo murder, essentially, because Yabo is the one that killed him, but he lured him away from everyone because he didn't know Yabo was going to do it. But point being, he was still, you could argue, just as guilty. Yeah. So the boy crawls up and he's like tugging, like they're in this tug of war with this big slab of meat. And the mom is just watching. And it is truly disturbing, if I'm being honest. Like mm-hmm. when you look at it within the context of the film, yeah. um, it's, it's pretty fucking crazy. I loved it. I thought that touch just really worked so well to kind of tell us where these characters were at. And honestly, there could have been no dialogue in that scene and you still would have gotten the point of it. Oh, like, yeah. Well, yeah, that, that that's something I want to, that's something I want to emphasize because that, you know, this movie can easily be, you know, kind of the bullet point of like, yeah, it's like city of God. It's like a, you know, Latin American, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, portrait of poverty or whatever. And it's like, it, okay, it is that right. But, those little surrealistic touches like they're not just little um flourishes for the sake of flourishing right i think you bring up a really good point which is they enhance the characters and the meaning of the story right like it's it's not just like oh let's have a crazy sequence in here because i'm boon well and i want to flex my surrealist muscles or whatever no it, it's it's a kind of surrealistic touch that deepens the power of the actual story that exists, you know, which I think is a crucial difference. Absolutely. Because sometimes, especially in modern day movies, you get a bunch of fluff and it's like, well, what point did this even serve? Yes. But when, when you have something like that, it enhances the characters and the story. And also it just kind of gives it a bit more layers than it would have had. Um, it definitely wasn't just like you said, so he could flex this muscle of like, check out what I can do. Right. It's the, that's the, uh, (laughs) the Danny Boyle effect or the Darren Aronofsky effect where it's like, why did you film this like this? There's really no reason for you to, other than because you were bored or something, you know, like, like, uh, 127 hours. There's no real reason for you to have two different cinematographers on this movie, you know, other than, Um, because it seemed fun, you know, like, whereas something like this, it's like, like, no, these little extra things that are added in deepen the mystery and the impact of this before we move on. I just want to mention, um, uh, one little thing here. Um, you know, uh, Boonwell employs, uh, reading from, uh, I don't know, a book about Boonwell, uh, written by Fernandez. Um, I don't have the exact title or name of the book here. Uh, Bunuel employed elements of Italian neorealism 
And these elements that we're talking about, just to be more specific, um, outdoor locations, as opposed to uh, filming uh, in a film set, uh, non-professional actors, as opposed to professional actors, low budget productions, of course, uh, a focus on the working classes. You know, that's obviously an element of neorealism. But Los Olvidados is not a neorealist film. Neorealist reality is incomplete, conventional, and above all, rational. And I don't actually even think that's a bad thing, right? I think that's just describing the kind of neorealist films that Vittorio De Sica and others were making at the time. Bunuel wrote a 1953 essay called Poetry and Cinema. And listen to what he says. This is, God, the, the man was a genius. He says, the, poet, the poetry, the mystery, all that completes and enlarges tangible reality is utterly lacking in neorealist cinema. So we can see this movie as almost a kind of reaction to Italian neorealism by saying, like, you've got this neorealist movies. There's no poetry to it. There's no mystery to it. There's nothing that enlarges reality, right? And that is kind of what he's after with this movie. He's after the whole neorealist thing, the social realism, but he's about enhancing, enlarging tangible reality, adding an element of poetry, an element of mystery uh, to this, um, you know, uh, well-worn, maybe not well-worn at the time, but to this more conventional uh, movie idea, which is, you know, poor people doing uh, depressing shit, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that unless you're like, I'm not going to say unless you're a true artist, but unless you're someone who can kind of see like through this enhanced lens, you might not be brave enough or talented enough to pull something like that off. Yes. Like to throw this surrealistic moment into this grounded film about despair and poverty. But clearly he had what it took and he did it perfectly. Right. So, but before we move on, I wanted to say, I mean, this, I think it's okay if we spoil the ending, isn't it? I mean, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So, so the original ending, I just, I wanted to tell you, cause I'm not sure if you knew this. Um, the original ending is is Pedro goes to kill Yabo essentially, um, and Yabo ends up killing Pedro, and the uh, then Yabo gets shot by the police, and Pedro's body is taken and dumped off of like a trash heap because the people who own the farm didn't want to be involved with everything going on, right? Because Yabo was being chased by the police, it was a big deal because this other kid had gotten killed, so they literally dump this child's body like down like a trash heap hill or whatever. Right. Um, the alternate ending is El Yabo and Pedro are fighting in an abandoned warehouse. Pedro pushes Yabo from the roof where he falls to his death. Pedro frisks the body for the money that Yabo stole from him um, because he, uh, Pedro had gotten some money from this facility he was at. That's not important. And then Pedro returns to the farm school with the money that the said principal from this institution gave him. And it ends like that. Oh, okay. So that is a much better, like more uplifting ending because in the, in the original ending, the villain dies, which is pretty par for the course, but you're kind of your hero slash. Not really not only gets murdered in like this pretty, like, like unpleasant, like really unfulfilling way, his body gets dumped. 
in the middle of nowhere. And I believe, if I remember correctly, they pass his mother on the way to dump the body. Mm-hmm. So that's a fucking bleak ending. So I'm kind of <laughs> glad they I'm kind of glad they didn't go with the alternative ending because what's the point? Like, why remove the knife in the last five minutes of the movie? Right. I'm looking at the uh, I'm looking now and I don't see any information on like why they filmed the alternate ending or what the, you know what I mean? Like what the, um, do you know anything about that by any chance? Like what? Like, no, I don't because Vera Diana has an alternate ending, but there's a reason for that, that we both know. Right. But there's not a reason given unless they kind of want it to do it less bleak. I, I don't know. I mean, this was a movie made within, you know, the mainstream Mexican film industry. So, I mean, I would assume, and again, this is an assumption. I would assume that, you know, it has something to do with the fact that this was supposed to be a mainstream movie and it's a really, <laughs> this is a really tough way to end a mainstream movie. Um, but uh, I don't know for sure, but either way, that's, that's fascinating that it even exists. You know, I wonder, I'd love to get Boone Wells take on it, but it looks like we didn't even, from what I'm seeing on here, we didn't even know that an alternate ending existed until 2002. Um, yeah. It's a relatively new development. Yeah. So we never really got Boonwell's take on that alternate ending. I'd love to know what he what he thought about it or or who made him do it or if he was ever actually considering the happy ending. Who knows? I'd love to know what he said about it. Um, but, yeah, that, you know, that 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 kind of um, bumps into this quote that I saw um, what you're talking about. Boonwell does not romanticize his characters. Even the abused blind man is revealed to have cruel habits of preying on children and selling fake elixirs. Uh, Los Olvidados, that the director visualized poverty in a radically different way from the traditional forms of Mexican melodrama. Bunuel's street children are not ennobled by their desperate struggle for survival. They are, in fact, ruthless predators who are not better than their equally unromanticized victims. Which is, you know... That's you can see the difference between those two endings. One of them would have would have been kind of ennobling and, you know, whatever. And the other one would have been, uh, you know, show them as ruthless predators, which is what the real ending does. Um, Speaking of not ennobling the poor people in your movie, (laughs) should we should we? Well, well, one second. Yeah, we can. But one second. I want to say on that note, it, it got me to the point where I couldn't even trust like the the man with no legs that they robbed and stole his cart. Like it got to the point to where I thought Boonwell was like going to go back to that character and he'd be doing something horrific because right. you could literally, you could not feel safe. Even the, the guy who owned the fucking farm who was just trying to appear like allegedly make a living and run a farm. Even he literally dumped a child's body in a ditch. <laughs> so there's just no, no one is safe from this from this awfulness but yeah that was a great segue that i ruined unfortunately when no you no, no. it's it's true there, people, so. there's no moral center to this movie you know it's 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 i don't know it's it's incredible i mean there's no other way to put it um but yeah and right. it just it just gets worse in the next one <laughs> yeah so the next one is vera diana um yeah i don't know i'm gonna set the table for this again and you just go off vera diana was 1961 this is a time period where where Bunuel is transitioning from his role as kind of a mainstream Mexican filmmaker. Um, 
where he is able to go back to Spain and partake in not just Spain, but also France and um, basically partake in the kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Emerging uh, European art cinema, you know, Godard uh, just released breathless, you know, we've got Antonioni and some other people in Italy and, you know, uh, Fellini is up to his old shenanigans and Bergman. And so, um, you know, Bunuel has been in exile, in exile for a long time, and now he's he's re-entering the continent. And uh, boy, does he come uh, does he come with a bang? You know, exterminating angel obviously comes out of this uh, movement back to the continent. Um, but first comes Vera Diana, nineteen sixty one. If if exterminating angel is his most popular movie, the movie that people most know about, Vera Diana might be the most critically favored. It seems like uh, it, it kind of like Vertigo and North by Northwest, maybe one of them is more popular, but one of them is more esteemed by critics. And Vera Diana, I think, is definitely more Vertigo than North by Northwest. Um, I don't know, man. Let's go in. What did you think about what's Vera Diana about and what did you think about it? So just real quick, I'm going to say this. So the listeners are aware the movie starts with a woman getting ready, a nun getting ready to take her vows and give her life to God. The movie ends with said woman allegedly about to engage in a threesome. So <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh. this movie, like I said, a nun, she goes to visit her uncle who basically paid for her to do all of this. She goes to visit him because they're not very close. The uncle is a creepy motherfucker and there is nowhere else. There is no way else to put that. Um, he is obsessed with her. She looks like his late wife. He wants to marry her and get her to stay forever. And when that doesn't work, whoa, whoa, he whoa, drugs whoa, whoa. her. Hold on. You skipped over one of the creepiest, most crucial details. She He asked her to put on his his dead wife's wedding dress. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there's actually quite a few like really creepy details. But he, lit he asked her, <laughs> and then she gets mad. But then she kind of reluctantly agrees because it's like, oh, he's a sad old man. Yeah. So then you're like, well, he's a sad old man, so I feel good about this. He can't get any creepier, can it? Well, it can. <laughs> he drugged her with, with the help of his servant, his maid. And then he lied and said that he took her virtue, and now she can't be a nun. Because he slept with her, raped her, essentially, while she was asleep. And then when she reacts poorly, he's like, no, 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 I lied. I didn't really do that. <laughs> so, well, he, he, I mean, let's, let's, I mean, he fully intends to rape her. Like, like. Oh, yeah. And I'm still not convinced he didn't, if I'm being honest. I know there's a scene where he, like, he starts to, but then he gets second, he gets second thoughts. But, dude, is Boone well? And at this point, I can't trust anything I see. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, he 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 fully intends to and then he doesn't uh and then he says that he does so she can't go back and be a nun and then says no, I was just kidding, I wasn't. Um <laughs> so she leaves to no one's surprise. But he ends up winning if you think about it. Like his even though he's dead cuz he kills himself after. Like that's when the movie kind of takes a turn, but he kind of wins because she's just going to stay there now. <laughs> so well, she's completely defeated and given up on God and he wins. <laughs> well, her, um, his illegitimate son, which I guess is her cousin. Um, 
who's also a creepy motherfucker. Right. He he shows up and kind of moves into the house and she decides, you know, um, she can't be sure whether or not he actually did rape her or not. And so he she decides, you know what? I mean, Vera Diana, like, let's let's take a second here. She starts the movie like this is not um you know, a lesser mind would have been like, I'm going to really take the piss out of the Catholic church. I'm going to, I'm going to show a nun and she's going to be fucked up. You know, like this is not some edgelord. Like Vera, like this, this woman, she is um, a good person. She is devoted, right? She is, uh, she wants to do good in the world. And this is even, shown more when she when she realizes she can't be a nun because she can't be sure if she's still a virgin or not where she um basically uh starts to renovate the the place where he lives where her or her uncle lived and uh dedicates her life to basically bringing in like beggars and homeless people and feeding them and morally educating them and so it's not it's not an obvious criticism. It's a it's a criticism of well, I don't know. What do you think about this? Is, is the movie criticizing her? Because I think it is, but it's just criticizing her in a very different way. It, it's hard. It's really hard to say because the movie really it it goes in very subtle ways. It goes after the church, and in not so subtle ways, it goes after why we should never ever help each other. Um, <laughs> So it's really difficult to say. I think that's part of the beauty of the film because nothing aside from like condemning charity almost, it obviously takes its shot at the church because this movie was a big deal. It really ruffles some feathers. I don't really know where it speaks about her because in the movie, she's so beaten down by the events that happened. She can't win. All mm-hmm. she wanted to do was be a nun. And then she she may or may not have been raped. She she tries to help the poor. That falls apart in a horrific manner. She's almost raped again. What the fuck is happening to this woman? Mm-hmm. And and then she basically she's so defeated. She's empty. She is a empty vessel walking around the halls of that house in the last frame of this movie. But like, I will I, I will say this. I will say this. There, there's there's two readings to this movie, and I'll make it clear which one I think I agree with. You know, one of the readings could be that this is a no good deed goes unpunished type thing where Lucia is trying to be a good person in a corrupt world and surprise, surprise, the world ends up corrupting her. And that's that. Right. But I also think I also think the film is criticizing her a little bit by saying. But by her moral education that she tries to give these beggars, right, she's trying to instill these um Catholic, you know, bourgeois Christian moral values, something that Bunuel repeatedly criticizes throughout his entire uh, 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 career. You know, that's kind of a bad mark on her part. I think there's I don't I don't think Bunuel is ever as simple as like, oh, man, she's getting what she deserves. I don't think that's the case at all. But I do think it's a situation where this is not a pure flower who is ruined by the by the uh, by the ravages of the world, she she is she represents and adheres to and tries to um, impose on these homeless people her kind of values that you know we know Boonwell thinks is bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
it's kind of critical well, of her too, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense when you frame it like that, simply because like, I don't want to get lost on a rabbit trail here so we don't run too long. But I will say like, we both grew up in church, not Catholic, but in a church. And um, with missionaries, the thing is always, I bring you food, I bring you water, I bring you this, I bring you that on the basis that you accept what I'm offering you, like mm-hmm. in terms of spirituality. Like, That's an ulterior so, motive. Yeah. So when she brings the poor to the house, like these people have been so disrespected and so abused. They're, they're basically, they're homeless beggars. No one wants to deal with them. They're an eyesore, et cetera, et cetera. She brings them to this house. But the, the, the prime example is the first guy that leaves because the servant was being a dick to him. And he's like, you know, fuck you, you know? And mm-hmm. she comes up and she's like, you're going to have to learn to control yourself and this and that. And he's like, well, I'm leaving then. Yeah. And he turns around and he's like, can I have some money? And then she gives him money and he's like, I'm only taking this because I'm poor, you know, and then he leaves. So it's a very interesting scene, but but I see what you mean. Like is, is her piousness as the cousin points out numerous times, is her piousness bordering on self-righteousness? Like, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, not, well, I mean, yeah, it's a self-righteousness, but it also goes beyond self-righteousness into the desire to control other people you know like uh, and like but but not ju- not just control them but you're trying to control them through like through through the lens of no I'm trying to help you yes because see I know what's best for you yes. you don't know what's best for you I do yeah no that's it's it's paternalistic it's controlling it's um <laughs> god you know it's 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 so easy to like read the kind of like Oh, he's taking the piss out of the bourgeoisie or whatever. But dude, it's so much more complicated than that. The moral universe of Bunuel is is complex, and no one gets out unscathed. You know, um, I don't. Well, know. Well, I, I want to say. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you can go ahead. I was just going to say I wanted to mention the uh, the riot. You know, this kind of um, you know where uh, she leaves. She and uh, Jorge leave for a few days, and they. You know, they break into the nice house and they just uh, <laughs> they just destroy the fucking place. Like, <laughs> well, see, that's when the movie that's when the movie kind of steers in a religious, uh, more of a religious uh, direction, especially with like the Last Supper posing. It was mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. And, and and I don't know if he meant this, but the woman sets the table up and she's like, everybody get together. And there's literally a still frame where they pose. Yeah. And she lifts her skirt to flash them. And I thought that was really funny because it's like the flash of a camera. Right, right, right. Um, And then they all laugh about it. But they fuck this house up. And they every time they fuck something else up, they're like, now we'll 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 clean it up before they get back. It'll be spotless. (laughs) And they just they just keep destroying shit. Um, And and then it then it unravels from there. One of the women is kissing another uh, is kissing another man and, and the blind man gets mad about it. And there's a, there's two gentlemen when Vera Diana and the cousin return, um, they tie up the cousin and essentially try to sexually assault her. Right. Um, and she's saved because what, because the cousin literally bribed one of them to, to stop the man. But I mean, it's just really interesting because is this once again, just like with, with, um, let the the first one we talked about. Oh yeah, Lodge Door, um, the Golden Age. Yeah, yeah. Lodge Door, the Golden Age. Just like with that, 
with religion and sexual oppression, this was a form of control mm-hmm. via charity and giving you something that resulted in something horrific happening. Because I feel like what Boonwell is trying to say is whenever you try to control something, regardless of your means, it will always end badly. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it, it's, yeah, man, it, it's, it's God, he's, he's just a genius, man. I mean, it, the complicated moral stand, I mean, the, the complicated nature of it, I mean, and the, you know, th- th- this whole riot where they, which by the way, uh, takes place. I don't know if you recognize the music. I, the only reason I recognize it is because it was my dad's favorite piece of classical music. And so it's just imprinted on my head is uh, Handel's Messiah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't recognize it to be fair, but I did read that that's what was playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I the only re- I mean the only reason I know it is because my like I said, my dad listened to it all the time. But, but yeah, the the Handel's Messiah playing, like I thought, you know, this is what you know, and I like Mother, the the Aronofsky movie, but this is what what Aronofsky thought he was doing in Mother, and this is what like I like Von Trier too, but this is this is what Lars Von Trier thinks he's doing when he has like, you know, uh uh charlotte uh what's her name uh you know poking willem defoe's penis you know driving a spike into willem defoe's penis and antichrist you know like this is um you know this kind of like uh just chaos happening and the da vinci's last like you said that's just man it's just genius man it's just you you can't fuck with this man he he's on another level um well there there's two things i want to point out just real quick is sometimes he's not so subtle and I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. The scene when the guy comes up with the dog tied to his wagon and the cousin's like, just put the dog in the cart. And then the guy's like, cart's not for dogs. It's for people. So (laughs) then he's like, well, I'll buy the dog. How much? And then he, he pays him. So then he, he holds the dog and like, he, he just saved the dog from being tied to the wagon. And it's a horrible existence because it's hot and they're abused and all that. And then just as he did, another wagon drives by with a dog tied to it. Like, because there's no way to win. Like, seriously, this movie makes you want to abandon whatever ethics you're currently practicing because it's like, no, bitch, there's no way you're going to win. <laughs> and, oh, um, man. It's, I mean, see, see like, I mean, I, I think we have, like, I'm, well, uh, I don't think we have necessarily differing things, but like, I agree with you that that is not the message of the movie, but that's the kind of vibe you get, you know, this kind of pointlessness or whatever. But I also am like, like I can't help but be like, God damn, man, if somebody can make something like this, then it's really going to be okay. Even though it's definitely not going to be okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, I'm heartened by the fact that Boonwell is just such a genius, you know, like it's, it's, it's just incredible. No, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and then I want to touch on the alternate ending real quick. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the, the ending is, is she is uh, Vera Diana has basically given up. She's, she's, you know, she's almost been raped. Uh, clearly none of this worked out for her and she's kind of in a contemplative type of mood and she's wandering around her room still at her, her uncle's estate. She goes to her cousin's room, knocks on the door. The cousin is in there with the maid. They're clearly not together, but they're also clearly having relations. And uh, she comes in and he's like, no, the maid can stay like, you know, we'll play. We're about to play cards. So she sits down 
she looks completely stoic. Mm-hmm. And that's how the movie ends with them playing cards. And Boone well had to make that ending because the original ending was a little too risque for them, but he makes this ending. And then he's like, I didn't give a shit because to me, a menage a trois is much more edgy than what I originally gave them. So I win. Yes. Yeah. So why don't you tell the people what the, what the, the original ending was before they made him change it? Yeah. So the original ending was just kind of, um, kind of just, she enters her cousin's room and closes the door behind her, you know, kind of that, uh, that Godfather type ending, you know, where that ends on a closed door. Um, but yeah, the fact and that- to me, that's much less to me, that's much more subtle. Yeah. Than, than the ending we got like significantly more subtle. Yeah. I mean, because the, at the ending, I mean, it's not just, not just her cousin, but it's her cousin and the maid and the final, the final line of dialogue, he says, you know, he wants, he wants Vera Diana to come over and, and join them. And, and he says, you know, the first time I saw you, I thought my cousin and I will end up shuffling the deck together, you know, and it's clearly they're about to have a threesome or something. Vera Diana has, completely given up on any moral code that she had, you know, which on the one hand, like, see, and this segues perfectly into what I think is so perfect about this movie. And, uh, you know, Bunuel in general, I guess, but I was going to go through the um, kind of David Thompson uh, entry on Bunuel, but I don't know, that's probably saved better for maybe a volume two, because he talks about a lot of movies that we haven't covered yet. Um, But I just want to say, like, even taking Boonwell apart as like a master or a genius or whatever, this movie in particular is, is amazing. And one of the reasons why that is it's like, he's like Renoir. He, he sets up these characters in these scenarios and he just lets it play out. But of course that's, that's an illusion. He's not actually letting it play out. He's directing it, you know, uh, behind the scenes, of course. And, there's no everybody's right and wrong like like vera diana it's like is she a sympathetic character kind of because she just wanted to do good but she's also kind of not because she wants to control people with the morality of the catholic church is it sad at the end is she does she kind of she looks stoic and looks like she's just strung out and completely given up any morals yeah it's kind of sad but it's also like she might actually have fun for the first time in her life in this threesome. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like there's, there's, there's so many complicated. It's like, Oh, when the, uh, when the beggars break in and they trash the house or whatever. And it's like, Oh gosh, doesn't that show how degenerate the beggars are? And it's like, well, yeah. But also on the other hand, like you were a beggar your whole life. You've never experienced this level of wealth. You know it has to end at some point. Why not ruin somebody else's party? Fuck them. It's not your house. It's some rich asshole's house. You know what I mean? Like, there's no right or wrong. There's no moral code. It's just um, uh, ever. There's just this really, really complicated morality that is um, impossible to decipher. And and um, it's just genius, man. There's no other way. To, there's no other way to describe it. It's it's just the man is a genius. And and I'll add on the end of the movie when they have the party and destroy the house. Look, I'm not going to condemn the poor people either, the beggars and, and the homeless, because when you invited them there, you gave them like this ulterior, like you had an ulterior motive. So you gave them, I'll give you this with this hand, but here's the stick. Like, here's the carrot, yeah. here's the stick. And that's all right. 
but you're being you were being so self-righteous about it. Like, why would I get mad at the homeless people and the poor people doing this whenever you're helping them by treating them like you're curing a disease? So, <laughs> right, I mean, right. I aside from the attempted sexual assault, which is obviously awful, sure, destroying the house and eating the food, who gives a fuck? I would have done the same thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the only thing that even comes up as uh, condemnable by today's standards is the sexual assault. You know, that that can be unequivocally kind of um, uh, uh, condemned, you know, at, at, at this point in 2021. But, uh, you know, I don't know how it read at the time, but maybe 1961, not so much. Maybe it was a little more ambiguous. You know, maybe there was some some people watching this in 1961 that was like, yeah, that nun's getting what she deserves or whatever. Um, which if that's the case complicates things even more, you know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to paint Boone well as pro sexual assault, but you know what I'm saying? Uh, like it, this was, uh, <laughs> this is a morally complicated movie. And I think, um, I don't know, man, he, he's a master. This, this for me will always be my favorite Boone well movie. It's just so complicated. Uh, so rich, um and so funny like it's fun to watch those people trash that fucking house like it rules and then you know like you said when she flashes the camera like there, i mean there is no camera but you know that that little pun there is always funny um yeah i don't know i just i love this movie man i just love the fact that you know he goes after rich people like he did it so well in exterminating angel he did it so well in this going after the wealthy and the elite um, so by today's standards, those two movies in particular, these two movies with Vera Diana and uh, and Exterminate Angel should definitely hold more social relevance um, under the uh, in that context, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah, definitely. no, man, I, I think this is this probably is my favorite. Honestly, I'm going to have to rewatch the Exterminating Angel because I have not watched that since we did the double feature on it back in April of last year. Um, yeah, but I'm going to watch it again. But dude, this movie. I mean. Yeah, this movie was something else. It's by far my favorite of the three we watch, but don't sleep on Los Avidados. Um, yeah, definitely. That's a fantastic movie as well. It's just saying something else. It's, mm-hmm. it's a little different. It's a little more, obviously a little more bleak in some ways. So, I want to read a couple of a uh, couple of little quotes about about Vera Diana to close this out. Like I said, I don't I don't want to I don't want to do, act like we're doing some kind of big Boonwell retrospective because we definitely have have many more of his movies to cover in the future. Um, but uh, the uh, official newspaper of the Vatican described the film as blasphemous. Um, um, let's see. Uh, shit, I lost my place. Oh, yeah. Bunuel said about the movie, um, I didn't deliberately set out to be blasphemous, but then again, Pope John is a better judge of such things than I am, uh, which I thought is, is such a great quote. Um, and then he also, oh, oh, this is another great quote. This is, there's this, there's this New York, we haven't mentioned him on the podcast. There's this New York times film critic named Bosley Crowther. Uh, he was the film critic for the New York times in like the, uh, uh, fifties and sixties for about 30 years there. Um, and he was uh, notoriously stodgy, you know, this was an old school guy. This was, you know, he went to Princeton in like the thirties. Like this is, this man is not, uh, not up with the times. And he watched this movie and did not like it. And I love this quote because this quote is like, this quote says everything that I like about the movie, but he acts like it's a bad thing. Um, He says, quote, 
Luis Bunuel is presenting a variation on an ancient theme in his new Spanish film, Vera Diana, which came to the Paris yesterday. Uh, the Paris Theater, which doesn't exist anymore, by the way, side note, and is going to be owned by Netflix, or is already owned by Netflix. So, you know, just in case you uh, these movies weren't bleak enough for you. Uh, anyways, quote, the theme is that well-intended charity can often be badly misplaced by innocent, pious people. Therefore, beware of charity. It is an ugly, depressing view of life. <laughs> and to be frank about it, it is a little old-fashioned, too. His format is strangely literary. His symbols are obvious and blunt, such as the revulsion of the girl toward milking, or the display of a penknife built into a crucifix. And there is something just a bit corny about having his bums doing their bacchanalian dance to the thunder of the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, to which I respond, uh, actually, it's not corny. It owns and is good and cool. Uh, so fuck off, Bosley Crowther. Um, yeah, that's my that's my final word on Vera Diana. So your final word on Vera Diana is fuck off, Bosley Crowther. <laughs> okay, maybe a little too harsh, uh, but I, I definitely think Bosley Crowther is uh, is missing everything that is cool and good uh, about this movie. Well, Bosley, I enjoyed having you as a listener. Uh, I guess that this is where we part ways. So, oh, I mean, he died like I don't know, twenty years ago. Oh well, I thought he was a subscriber. Um, <laughs> no, I no that those that's it's so interesting to to see these uh, what these older critics say, like because that's that's so far off base. I don't even know where to start. So, uh, bottom line is we're gonna do a Boonwell part two. I'm excited. Uh, I don't think we're gonna get better than Vera Diana or the exterminating angel, but it's still nice to, to be able to kind of see more of his work and see more of where his head was at making other things. Uh, so I am excited to get to that. So, Hey, we'll see. It's all uphill from here. Guys, let us know, um, if you, uh, how you feel about Vera Diana or what your favorite Boonwell movie is. And, uh, yeah, just check that out. And, uh, Jacob, do you have anything to add before we wrap it up? Nah, man, let's tie it up. If you want more of this, uh, of this, um, uh, insightful uh, film analysis and you, know, you want more of us shit talking 85 um, year old film critics uh, check out patreon.com slash silver screen video uh, for more. See, that's where I was so off my game on that. So thanks for, uh, thanks for saying that. Also uh, I will continue uh, your thought of this Boonwell episode being cursed because uh, I'm hoping there's no issues in the edit, guys, but there was a couple of spots where J Jacob cut out and I cut out, so I'm hoping that everything stayed intact. But uh, if it didn't, uh, this episode continues to be cursed, so bear with us. It's been well fucking with us from beyond the grave, you know? It is. It is, that son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> okay, but guys, uh, thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video. We were happy to get back to kind of doing these, uh, these director episodes with just uh, me and Jacob, but don't sleep on it uh we will have guests in the future uh but we're just going to be doing this for a while so yeah anyway guys thanks for lined up for you guys yeah we got some really some really good ones uh cooking and hopefully it will work out so anyway guys thanks for stopping by the silver screen video and we will see you next week yeah.